when we thought, right, let's take it to market and see what it's worth, and we did, and it wasn't worth enough uh, in our eyes. So, and it wasn't that the market was being stingy. That you know, the market is what the market is. So that's the most immediate, true reflection that you can get. You know, go and speak to a couple of people, and they'll give you a couple of offers. And if you don't like them, then you've got to do something about the business. And that's where we were at that point. All right, welcome to Insights as a Service. Whether you're watching this on YouTube or Spotify or listening on iTunes or some other podcast platform I don't know about, thank you for joining us today. We are catching up with Greg Sharp, who I guess after your base two exit, your Zen contract startup, can I call you a serial entrepreneur at this point or is that too much with two in the bag? Uh, I think I'm onto my sixth business, yeah. So oh, there you go. probably not yes. too far off. More than two is a trend, right? Yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a habit at that point. Yeah. Okay. We're going to need to touch on the other four because I don't know enough, which again, poor research, but that's okay. Uh, all right. Where to start with? Let's let's um, maybe give some background. Um, do you want to just tell everyone, um, I guess, I know of base two. So maybe tell us the story up to base two and then let's dive a bit into what that was and where that led. So Varsity was at Auckland uh, after boarding school. Then uh, what did I do? I went to University did um, international business and computer science and finished there, um, got a job like almost straight out of university as a IT manager for OPSM or Connector Safety, Protector Safety actually, I called back then. And that was kind of um, my first foray into the industry, but uh, obviously on on a large business side running what was an internal IT. uh, I had no process or anything, so that was a real fast learning curve into into what it was and then you know then from there I, I went on my did my OE and I blagged my way into a security job and worked my way up to be the head of security for a bank and um, there was a few jobs in between but you know you kind of a lot of learning on the job and making sure that you just get there early and leave uh, leave late and make sure that you're improving each day you know those types of things the amount of times when I was in England that uh, my boss would call me over and tell me that I had to stop making him look bad because I was getting there too early and leaving late that was certainly in the early days, and then uh, and then when I when I came back home, um, my parents were always entrepreneurs and they had small business, so I, I wanted to tickle that uh, side of my business uh, yearning, if you like, and and st- uh, joined up with a couple of other fellas and started BTG. Well, they'd already started it, but I came along fairly soon afterwards, and that was kind of the first growing of a vendor, uh, or sorry, a, a supplier of service, or, or even before it was called an MSP. And uh, we we took that from about three people to to eighty, I think, when I left, and it was a, it was a good solid business. And I, I ended up being still one going of the strong today, right? Junior owners, yeah, still going really well. Actually, Steve and Neil are still doing really well with that business. Tim and uh, and behind him. Interestingly, they're actually a, a customer of or a client of uh, Lightwise, um, buy some services from us in the Waikato. So there you go. Synergy. Yeah, yeah, that was a good good uh, run with them. And uh, I, I always wanted to have something on my own though, and that was just about the cusp of the time where. Things were going from break fix through to you know fixed monthly contracts with uh, you know, almost anything now, but back then it was just managed services or services a contract. And so so what year are we talking? Uh, two thousand eight. Okay. And so yeah, I left there and, and started base two in, in earnest in uh, August and uh, and started hiring staff in the January in two thousand nine. So we, we kind of called it two thousand nine to get going. The first four months was just floundering around figuring out what we would do okay and so based to you exited what year you sold to cordia in 2020 was it 
sold in 2021 and okay. uh in april i exited supposed to be three months later but i stayed on for a little bit just because it was such a changing of the guard and wanted to make sure everything was pretty stable i stayed six months and then uh yeah so that was 20 2021 end off and um have been doing zen contract and full fling ever since cool all right and we'll get back to those so base two though um for the other msps listening a lot of them do um, any special source to what what Base Two was doing um, from the MSP side, or was it just that you, you know, based on the, the the service itself, but the 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 product portfolio was fairly standard? So there's probably three or four main things, and and I'll, and I'll just list them off, and then you choose whether you want to dive into them or not. We we did a lot of time on product fit, so we made sure both for the customer and for ourselves that we knew our stack really well and we started to define the stack so we didn't support all firewalls we didn't have you know maybe more than two network vendors we, we just narrowed down on what was really good for us but then so then we had a lot less retraining for our team they didn't have to know eight products they knew one and uh, that gained a lot of efficiencies it also improved customer service because we'd get back to them with issues resolved a lot faster you know there's a lot of positives in creating an upward spiral where just narrowing down the amount of not services you offer but just the stack that you use so we did that really well and identified that early on we um as soon as we got ahead of the cash flow curve we started assigning resource to to start to be to innovate how we were doing our services now, not everyone can do that from the beginning. I get it. It took us probably three or four years until we were well ahead of the cash curve that we could have someone on staff that only looked at system improvements. Yeah. We probably got there that early because the business was going 12 years, just to put it in context for everyone. Um, <clears throat> we're still going, sorry, but yeah, I got out of 12 years. So, But yeah, identifying that stack, making sure that we were continuously improving services, we allowed from the floor uh, over any given month, people could give service suggestions. And if that was taken on, they'd be handsomely rewarded, you know, from might be a trip away, it might be dinner out with their spouse, whatever the results are. But we would allow those to come in from anywhere and they could be at any level of the business, you know, right from service desk through to strategic initiatives. Um, we, we definitely had a very transparent culture around making sure that everyone knew exactly what the, the vision and the plan was uh, right down to an immediate 60, 90 um and and 365 you know year-long goal um probably culminating brendan and when we set a real stretch target for our monthly recurring margin and, and we we smashed it took it took nine months but we smashed it and we took the whole company to fiji nice nice and it was uh strategically laid out in front of us as to what we would spend when we we're over there how it would work out before we set the targets and we knew the business was going to be a lot better off you know it wasn't it wasn't a careless endeavor just so we could go on a three-day bender um, albeit that it was pretty much that, but we, we planned it out, you know, over the course of a long period of time and the business was way better off for, for uh, achieving those targets and maintaining those targets. And we pinned them to um, monthly recurring revenue because that stays with you for some time. You know, you get a lot of, a lot of payback on those. So I, I guess when you're, you're encouraging everyone to contribute towards um, process improvements, you've essentially got a business of business analysts, essentially, that you're, you're sort of encouraging to to really critically think about the way that they approach everything within the business right yeah but you you end up with this thing called superfluous effort you know like uh, everyone's pretty good at doing their own job but you're not really tapping into all the other stuff typically that they're thinking about you know uh, any employee will will sit there and think i wonder if you know i think this this could be done better and by by harnessing those um suggestions you're getting 
a lot of intel that you wouldn't get otherwise. And, and you're still paying. You know, there's still the same amount of remuneration. They're still getting paid the same way. But you're getting a lot of feedback of when the time when they're chatting about their job with their friends at a barbecue or they're sitting down you know, in a bath with a glass of wine having to think about how they could do things better, there's an avenue for them to give those things back and yeah, the business yeah. benefits, right? So there'll be a little bit of a handout um, you know, for their efforts or whatever, but ultimately the business gets all those improvements. And those little ones seem insignificant when you just put them down on a piece of paper individually, but when you add them all together, it, it creates amazing momentum. Yeah, right. Fair. So we often talk about this podcast about how um, you know, the old saying, uh, revenue is vanity, profit sanity, cash is king. You talked about there your, your revenue-based targets. How did you ensure that that didn't drive the wrong behavior, that um, a focus on revenue didn't see the GP underneath it slip? So we only ever, uh, we, we had a figure that we, ch- we ch- uh, say chased, which was steeple, and that's monthly recurring margin. Okay. So on every time we went and signed up, let's say a $5,000 deal, there was $2,200 of margin on that. And we already had loaded costs into it. We knew that we were chasing that difference, you know, the net cash engine or the EBITDA, whatever you want to call it, but it's most definitely got a margin figure into it, not just a total turnover. Because you're right, there's a total turnover is, could be really, really, really large, but if you're not making any profit, then uh, there's this little point. You know, we certainly had one of those, um, types of scenarios where in the early days of um, of base two we won a, a big project you know separating J- JB Weir from Goldman Sachs and then we ran JB Weir for three years and it was really high turnover and possibly because we were doing a lot of learning but also it was such high turnover that they had someone to manage us you know we, we just were not making any money out of it so it allowed us to grow the business get a great reputation and we learned a lot along the way but soon didn't make any money out of it so Yep. I always would always advocate that lots of medium-sized customers is the nirvana for actually making money. Um, yep. Two or three big ones just puts the business at risk because they do change vendors from time to time and you'll gear your business up for fulfilling that contract and if it goes away quickly, uh, it's really hard to right-size the ship without ruining the morale of the, of the business. So spreading the risk with lots of medium to small-sized customers I think is uh, I'm a big fan of. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. Cool. So I think there's two things that a lot of our listeners are super interested in. One, how to orchestrate a high value exit and two, how to um, uh, really efficiently and effectively start up an enterprise and and you've done both. So right now, let's talk about the exit. So how far into base two did you start thinking about positioning the business uh, for an exit or did it just sort of come about more more organically than that? Uh no, it was always strategic and in, in probably from about year five or six. Uh, and just bear in mind, there was another six years after that. But I've got a little bit of, a little bit of context in that we had a major shareholder that uh, that uh, was my original business partner that ended up you know, funding a good portion of the business growth. And that's not uncommon, uh, either a high net worth individual or, or an entity or, or you use some debt funding. And uh, we used some of each, but... Um, so we had to go through a maturity process at about year six and buy, unfortunately he passed away. So we had to buy his family trust out. So we needed to understand what our, you know, contracted revenue was at, whether, you know, how much EBITDA we were making, what our total turnover versus staff count costs were. You know, we did a lot of analysis on um, on what to measure. And, you know, on the Zen contract website, there's actually a couple of things uh, on there about 
what what uh, what are the ten things that are the best things that you should go and measure, and, we, and that's pr- pretty much where this came from, and that allowed us to really get close to the numbers of where we were um, as far as a business going, and we were making some money back then, but not a whole lot, right? So we'd probably uh, reduced a lot of, of the debt that we had in starting the business. Um, the cash engine could be tuned a lot more. We were definitely carrying two, three, four extra staff so that we were always ready for the growth that we wanted to continue to go on. Yep. And that's, you know, a, a really common thing to do is you certainly with the service business, you don't want to run it too lean and grow at the same time because the service just goes down and down and down. Yeah. You've got to be ready to take on that business that you're setting the goal for. That's it. So, um, we would always carry one extra person in the service desk. We always had one extra entry in extra engineer. We always had another admin person to make sure that doing business with us outside the actual services was always a pleasure. So those types of things were strategically there. Um, but then once we did that purchase and realized that um, it was even a lot of money back then, we figured that if we started to groom the business in ways, you know, when we did want an exit in two, three years' time, and we weren't thinking about a specific time at that stage. It wasn't really until probably in two or three years' time when we, you know, so we're now at year nine, when we thought, right, let's take it to market and see what it's worth. And we did, and it wasn't worth enough uh, in our eyes. So, and it wasn't that the market was being stingy, that, you know, the market is what the market is. So, that's the most immediate true reflection that you can get, you know, go and speak to a couple of people and they'll give you a couple of offers. And if you don't like them, then you've got to do something about the business. And that's where we were at that point. So we got really strategic from there. So we thought, what are the biggest things when and did some research, what are the biggest things that we can do to improve the EBITDA valuation and pretty much all MSPs until they get up to about 10 million of turnover will be done on a multiple of EBIT. If you are in the, um, ISV space or software as a service space and you've got a significant recurring revenue from a particular widget that can scale a lot more, then there's different valuations, right? They go from sort of 10, 15 to maybe even up as high as 20 in the past. Not so much now, but you know that can be significant and they're a multiple of revenue. But the multiples for MSP service-based businesses, even if they are highly subscribed, um, is typically a multiple of EBIT. So there's, there's really good levers that you can pull one get all of your contracted revenue onto contracts if you can put them onto term-based contracts right that that increases it again and put them onto term-based contracts where it's not uh, super easy for them to just walk away from it um that being the client but yeah they've still got to have an out clause because otherwise no one's going to sign them and that out clause is usually non-performance by by mutual agreement and and that's fine for someone that's looking at it because everyone has the best intent of actually supplying reasonable services mm-hmm. um then so that's all your contracts tied up then have them all documented in a particular one area so they're easily referenceable so if someone wants to do due diligence on you you just go here's all the contracts and you know. the other one was getting all of your procedures and your business documented um and this is a big ask for a small medium-sized business right so it, it took took a little bit of time but if you had a position description for someone, made sure that it had, you know, what they were supposed to be doing, how they would be measured, if they had any at risk, what they were, and put those all in a folder and then allow people to get measured against it. Um, so those types of things. And then obviously we already already aligned our stack to make sure it was as efficient as possible. And, and then the big thing we had was a... Uh, um, 
a culture based vision and, and goal setting program where everyone was utterly aligned about what the top business goal was and that flowed down to their team goals which flowed down to their individual goals based on a white paper that I wrote uh, a while ago and a piece of software that we had called Big Five but it's uh, ultimately as long as you've got a singular vision for the business and it's all moving you know forward in that way those things all tied up to a pretty healthy package for someone when they came and purchased our business. Then the last thing is that you've got to make the business able to be run without you. Mm. That's absolutely paramount. Right? That's the yeah. big thing that will take it from whatever you thought it could be to something that's more. Because, um, that's one of the hard, I think that's one of the hardest things for owners, uh, particularly maybe that, I, wonder, I was going to say sub 10 mil, but I think sub 20 mil, it's still really hard for owners to extract themselves from, you know, really the, the, the cooperations of the business. It's a, it's a really active pursuit. Like you've got to sit down and say, right, what are the main 10 things that I do and who am I going to give them to and what's my time frame to get it done? And ultimately you're trying to get yourself out of a job. That's where people fall over because they go, I don't want to lose. This is how, this is my identity. This is the business I built from scratch. This is how I define myself. I don't want to get out of a job. But those two, two things work against each other if you want to sell your business. So the question so was, how do you get a good exit? That's a really important part of it is to not get rid of yourself, but put yourself in a position where if you went on a three months hot air ballooning holiday and you survived and came back, would the business be in really good shape when you came back? So it had yeah. 90 days to run without you. Then you're in good shape. Yeah. Great takeaway. So a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to um, a guy called Will Slappy, who I think at this point he's probably acquired 12 or so um, MSPs um, under the IT voice umbrella. He's over in America and this whole thing. But he was talking to me about valuations and he was saying, you know, if you're lucky, maybe five times, seven times EBIT, um, EBITDA, uh, you know, that might be a thing. My understanding is you did much better than that um, when you sold to Cordia. I'm not sure how much you can talk about specifics, but. Um, well, they're, they're a public company, Brendan, and they made it really public. So, yeah. so <laughs> okay, let's, let's do it then. I was so giving you an out just in case, but that's good. So, I 10, mean, ten point two. So, is it is a number? Yeah. So, so pretty, pretty quality multiple. So, I guess the key takeaway there is for people who are just wanting to kind of reference checks the the advice that was just given. Uh, there's a pretty good reference check, so um, worth worth taking on board. Um, just just a question: that white paper you mentioned um, is that still available somewhere for people to to take a look at? Yeah, if you just go to www.mybig5.work, um, okay. you, you can just put your name and email address on there and, and download a copy and, and have a look. And that's the theory of, of that software. Um, you know, the actual software is about goal setting and alignment of business and setting your, your team strategy. Um, okay. It's it's near on free, $5 a head or something. So, But the white paper's there as a start. Gold. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about Zen Contract because that's where you and I caught up years and years and years ago when you're still with Base 2 over in the Gold Coast. We bumped into each other again um, over in the States uh, more recently with your Zen Contract hat on. Um, so you exit base two, you work there for a while, you help with the transition, uh, and then what you get bored and you think what next, or did you actually, as part of your exit strategy, were you thinking, I already know what's coming next? Uh, about four years ago, we identified when we started the process of valuing the business that we needed to do something with contracts and we were doing them with like a lot of MSPs. I, I now have a full-time job speaking to MSPs about their contracts. Clearly that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of MSPs are still doing their contracts using word documents or templates from someone else and doing the negotiation via email and 
then they can't reference yeah. it and doesn't reflect the services they're providing. All that sort of thing. Exactly the same problem set that we had four years ago. Um, so I was, I was at a conference in Miami, Autotask conference. I think I just got off stage speaking uh, about base two. And I bumped into two Kiwi guys that were developers and I said, look, I've got this idea. Would you be interested in going 50-50? And, you know, I'll, I'll front them some money. You guys do a little bit of sweet equity. Let's get a product up and see if we can make it multi-tenant because I think it's a problem that lots of other MSPs have. Uh, that was about two, maybe 2016, 2017. And <clears throat> uh, along the way, we built version one and we were running it inside base two. It was pretty crappy to be fair, um, but it was uh, it was even even as, as frustrating as it was, you could still see it was better uh, than maybe, maybe than what we were doing right now. And then we basically spent the next two years uh, rounding the corners off it and stress testing it. We had a limited amount of customers, but it, it concentrates on making sure that your contracts are templated it's easy to execute them, i.e. e-sign, e-signatures built in. Um, they hook into all the PSAs, so the connect wires and the auto tasks. They've got flows through to say you know, each section can be worked on by different people. All the things that you would kind of want in managing a contract from end to end, we've tried to build in there. Uh, and a lot of those features have been built in the last eight months. So to answer your question in a shorter fashion, I knew that this was going to be my journey after I finished Base 2 because we already had this incubated company uh, in tow. Uh, myself and the original developers owned a good portion of it. We went and did a capital raise as soon as I finished up at uh, Cordia and uh, raised a million bucks and relatively quickly, actually, mainly sort of friends and family around. They kind of thought we knew what we were doing and hopefully they still do. I shouldn't say that, but uh, and, and built out the rest of the features around it and a lot of the workflows and built a team that's um, in the right time zones to be able to go and attack the the MSP market. So we've got people in Ontario, Canada, London, Philippines, Australia, and New Zealand now. So um, the sales slowly coming up, but the product's now pretty fit for purpose. Like it's infinitely better than it's ever been, and uh, exciting that each time I speak to an MSP, they have you know they have those light bulb moments that go on, and they can see that their life's actually going to be a lot easier. Uh, it's yeah. an area that they hadn't. Th- some of them hadn't even thought about attacking. <laughs> But it, it'll be one of those glass ceiling things that they just won't be able to grow beyond because they don't have a methodology for doing the renewals. They're always going to miss the renewals. I mean, the master services agreement's out of date and they're exposing themselves to operational risk. Depending on which region they are, that could allow them to be uh, sued or a little bit undone or, you know, they're going to be on the back foot if there's a, a contentious issue, right? So uh, it, it, it provides them with the fundamental building blocks of which all the business is done on top of, you know, certainly for Lightwire, someone engages you, you'll send them a contract, they'll sign that, then you'll start provisioning. It's it's the first proper uh, place where I agree with you and we let's go and do this. Prior to that, it's just a proposal which one person says, yeah, okay, I think we might move ahead with that, you know, but then this is foundational contracts or agreements or whatever you want to call them that need to be in place so that you can then launch on to go and do more things together. So I find it exciting relatively boring topic typically when we were in business but now that we can automate it and get a level of compliance and risk mitigation for all of these MSPs out there I think it's a fun place to be. So like do you pitch it as uh, I'm solving these problems which is is again that compliance and that efficiency and that end-to-end I guess clarity between customer or client and, and, and business 
Um, or is it is it sometimes framed as, look, this is one of those those critical must get rights if you want to position yourself for exit, or is it a bit of both? Uh, the exit's kind of a bonus based on the fact that if you do this, then you're setting yourself up for an exit because you're going to exit your business at some stage, right? You're either going to sell it or get taken out of the box. So you're going to have to move on at some stage. And even if you leave after a box, then you want it to be worth as much as you can for your family. So no, that's, that, I see that as a, as a beneficial byproduct of it. Uh, certainly some people have come to us and said, hey, I want to get out. You know, I'm, I'm aging. I, I want to have some time in the sun or whatever. I've got 18 months. I want to start the journey. Let's do it with Zen Contract. You, you can help us out. There's definitely a pathway for that. But it's also for an operational a business that's actually just operating as it is now. Um, I usually take, talk to them about if they want to get rid of the nightmare of missing a renewal, if they want to make sure that if they're out walking in the park and somebody needs to send someone a contract, they can actually do it on their mobile device and know that it's actually correct and it's covered and, you know, those those types of things. So it's a, an efficiency play. It's making your life easier. It's making sure that your sales process is in order, uh, that your renewal process is in order, and it gives you peace of mind because you know that you've got workflow that you can lean back on so uh, you've you've set up a business uh in nzau that's a, a services-based business when you've got a software as a service multinational operation what are the what are the new lessons you're learning or what are the similarities in approach and i guess uh, ultimately you know how are you finding this this rollout so on a people level and it's that's where i've always wanted to concentrate first because one of the best things we had at base two was a, an outstanding team with individuals that came collectively together as a team and, and it was it was a, a synergy based thing right so i wanted to emulate that with our um international team and they needed to be international because uh we're covering a lot of geographies and eventually time zones so doing demonstrations at through 4 30 in the morning it's tricky i did i did uh, when i was at james Bugle's house i did a pitch uh at 2 30 in the morning sydney time but i just arrived there so for me it was 4 30 in the morning and it was, it was a nightmare so we, yeah we wanted to get to the point where we had people in the right time zones fairly early on um to do that we wouldn't have offices there's just no point uh in mm. having anything local because so we would get together at shows but mainly online and just hiring them was was interesting because uh, if you go back two or three years or even four years, there wasn't services like remote.com, which is a uh, employer of record in God knows how many, maybe 50 countries. And so I didn't know how I was going to do that. But now it's actually, you know, I can use remote.com as a, an HR solution for multi-geographies. So that was a learning and is something that I'm sort of, you know, really thankful that is in place to allow this. The next thing was managing culture, uh, and I think we're getting to a point where we're starting to do that and do that quite well. We've found, even with all the time zones we are, you know, only one person has to stay up or, or get up early, or mm. um, and we can have regular team meetings, and then other we'll have some sub team meetings, but potentially using the Big Five software that we have, where all team members know what the other one's up to for that week based on a couple of operational things, a couple of strategic things that they're doing in one personal. And it kind of humanizes that uh, team element a little bit just so we're a little bit involved in each other's lives beyond work but not too far, you know. I mean, right That's now I know cool, one of the team members wants to um, go to the gym three times a week and, and start running just to lose a bit of weight, right? Mm -hmm. So, cool, we've got something else to talk about that's not just work. How's the yeah. run going, you know? just uh, In a remote team 
those little things uh they help yeah because it's such a difference from having a tight-knit office in in auckland or wherever and um and then going to a, a face on the screen uh, times however many employees you've got it's um it's it's it is tough like even us we've got a really distributed team across a couple of countries and a bunch of cities and yeah there are people in the business that i just don't know that well and and it's it's strange byproduct of growth and, and just i guess the business we're in but um yeah that cultural piece it, it doesn't stop being important yeah that's pretty universal any business right and i think it's especially important in a business kind of like yours and maybe ours as well that are actually relatively flat um so you you know you'll have general management and then you've got maybe some leadership and then you've got a lot of a lot of people doing and they're all equally skilled, high and low, but doing different stuff. Like we've got excellence in marketing, we've got excellence in development. They sit relatively flat, and as they should, um, as opposed to a, like a really tiered structure that you might get in manufacturing or, or a larger team, you know. So hmm. um, that flat nature it works better if they know a little bit about each other and can yeah. converse. And probably the other thing I did, Brendan, uh, reasonably early on is really actively encouraged these people and even gave them a bit of budget to try and get online and get to know each other external yeah to try and build that thing so eventually i mean a few of us got together in vegas as you got to see because we were we were up there you know that there was a good energy when we arrived of course we were in vegas hmm. that always helps how that ali got the presidential suite or whatever she got but yeah ah, she did yeah <laughs> person. um Good for her, but they, uh, you know, there was a bit of energy just to sort of meet each other, and then we'll, we'll all probably l- right later in the year we might get together in New Zealand and, and um, you know, try and carry that on. But we'll see. A slight, slight uh, side point here, but are you going to the IT Nations event here on the Gold Coast in? Oh, when is that? That's that's September first week of September. Uh, it's the end of August, early September. But yes, we are. We're one of the one of the sponsors there, so we'll be there. Oh, great. See you there. Done. All right, that'll be dangerous. All right. Uh, <laughs> we are both absolute enablers, so that's fine. Um, all right, cool. Let's talk about next thing. So um, actually going back a step, when um, uh, Base 2 was acquired by Cordia, or since then, what's Cordia really done with the intellectual property they acquired and, and the, the products that, that, that they got as part of that acquisition? How's that being used now? So the actual brand is still uh, in use, so being Base 2, and it, it, it was – they actually bought a few companies in a row, so um, a security or InfoSec, and then they bought SecOps. Uh, they bought Base Two, then they bought SecOps, and they couldn't go about doing a, uh, a rebranding strategy. Uh, it would just be too uh, too too overarching. And certainly, a couple of those brands had quite good uh, brand equity, as, as did Base Two, but potentially in a different segment of the market than Cordia normally operates. One of the, and I, I'm pretty sure I can say this, uh, and, and if not, I'm sure they'll ring me and tell me not, but one of the reasons they bought, actually two main reasons they bought Base 2 was for the operational maturity because of like those things that we talked about. And those, some of those systems they could actually utilize in their business. And the other one was around uh, the culture. They wanted to get that young uh, challenger team mentality and bring it back into Cordia and reinvigorate everything. Mm-hmm. And they got both of those things. So they definitely did. I think they're going to rebrand Base 2 to being uh, Cordia Modern Workplace, which is kind of that oh, yeah. support and cloud and all that sort of stuff. They actually had a little cloud business. I'll probably mash those together. Um, we had some brand equity around being, you know, um, like that challenger mindset around the being the Base 2 ninjas and stuff like that. I think that'll probably just drop away. 
logically because they have um, quite a mature client base that are typically 100 seats and above, about 1,200 of those customers. So uh, I think Base2 has just gone from strength to strength as far as growth and everything. Their, their challenge was hiring enough of the right people uh, to continue on that growth. I know they got a bit thin at one stage because the great resignation happened. Some of the directors left. There was just a changing of the guard. Uh, but they have since built it up because we had a leadership team of, of uh, five or six people and four of those are still there. And the, so the core of that culture that we build is still there. And I think they're just using that as a foundation to build on it again. So, I'll give that to Cordia. They, um, they, they retain staff well, right? Like people don't leave there in a hurry. They, they don't have a, a retention problem as far as I can see. Almost to a, to a joking point that, you know, there's really high tenure that potentially some of them might want to move on. But the, 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 the good thing about having long tenure there is that they retain all their intellectual property. You know, in a service-based business, even though we've got repeatable products, certainly in networking and managed networking and managed security, it's it's the relationships and knowing the clients and uh, and stuff. You know, and that's even more so in a in a managed IT business. So, uh, retaining staff is paramount. Where do you see the the convergence between telco and MSP going in in the NZ and AU market? Well, it's an interesting topic of conversation, isn't it? Because there's there's a quite a few case studies where larger telcos have gone in, into that IT side of things, right? So you take a look at Vodafone at the moment, it's really trying to do it and push it in down the stack. Mm. Um, has obviously made a play for doing that because they were starting to, over time, get marginal returns on their telco business, on their network business. They then bought an SD-WAN, then they bought a security business. Best thing they could have done was bought or InfoSec, then they bought SecOps. Yeah, it's been amazing for them. Yeah, gave them incredible credibility in the market as the main um, uh, security go-to-market, you know, security player. And then uh, buying SecOps just allowed them to layer on top of that and really high margin in those managed service contracts, certainly when you've got all of the infrastructure there already. Um, uh, And then they they bought base two, and and that's an incredibly profitable part of their business. Uh, I should imagine it still is. You know, I'm not obviously not close to the figures, but given the nature that it's growing and a lot of the infrastructure costs have stayed low, you know, you imagine those jaws are just opening up between uh, the profitability or the, the EBIT figures that they're getting out of the business now. So I'm, I'm mm. sure that they're actually feeding and watering it, um, and they must be because otherwise the senior guys, that, guys and girls that were there, uh, wouldn't be there anymore. No, but but it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are some uh, telcos who have done it well, but I think they're probably the exception. And I think it, it it almost forces you to to operate in a tier where you're really dealing with businesses that have an internal IT team and aren't reliant on a on an external um, you know MSP of any kind, because those MSPs will see that telco as as potentially there to eat their lunch, right? And it would make sense for them to. Yeah, well, you're right. Cordia had a channel beforehand, and then this is for obvious reasons, slowly evaporated that channel away a little bit. Mm. Um, I didn't really answer your question before. Where do I see it going? Uh, I see that there's going to be some challenges that will get up to try and go against the larger telcos in their own telco business using SD-WAN. I don't see the telcos going down to where a a good portion of MSPs play, which is in that sub-50 space. So... I think they'll still have a channel in the in the smaller portions of the market. It's just not scalable for a large business to get down there and, and do those types of things. But 
is is that because at that level, at the sub fifty, it's really about that um, that human relationship piece, and the bigger telcos just can't really get down to that granular relationship level. Does it become more about service and price point? You have uh, a, an entrepreneur to entrepreneur sort of mindset where you get a little bit of linkage there that that, that they've built their business or they're running a smaller business, and you are too, and they they kind of like to stick together. What frustrates a small business owner is when they get two or three or four or five account managers in a short order of time from their telco and they don't really know them and it's changing over all the time. They just get frustrated, you know. So that would allow the smaller business who's doing some telco and some SD-WAN and things to actually supply those services because they've got an account manager they know yeah. if, it's, if it's reliable. So that allows them to be a bit of a challenge to some of the larger guys. I know the instillery's gone and, you know, gone into some of the larger accounts, um, you know, I don't know exactly who they are, but, you know, some four, five, six, seven hundred seat accounts with an SD-WAN play and have one business off the larger telcos because purely on the relationship that they, you know, had known them for a long time and they trusted them and stuff. So, Yeah. And look, in that case, I mean, the interesting thing with the ancillary, and, and I hope I'm not talking out of turn here is because, uh, again, they're our client, um, is that we provide that that base, you know, internet service behind the, the SD-WAN for them in almost all cases. And I think they're a good example of they've, not sought to be everything to everyone, but they've taken the value layer and really sought to deliver that and the, the sort of commoditized underpinning access. They've been happy to sort of give that to us as a partner. So it's been it's been a relatively interesting model, um, and and definitely you know help their margins and ring fences the business from a churn perspective. If you if you think that you're going and putting a product product together, like we we had certain levels of bundled product um, when we were at base two, and Relatively early on in the networking piece, I, I sort of uh, did a, a TCO or total cost of ownership uh, exercise on what would it be to supply a circuit and a managed firewall and a managed router and a managed this and that to X, Y, and Z, just did a business case and put in the best gear you can get, right? So went for high-end Cisco's. Okay, it's a little bit more for the client on $10, $20 per month or whatever it is, but you're, you're in the same light. So likewise, seen as really, really reliable almost infrastructure isn't it like mm. and then that gives them the platform that they can go and add their value-added services yeah so if you're yeah where you guys are at like if you're providing that solid knitting that's always up then i i would almost see that as a given there's no point in trying to emulate what you're doing that's mm. just not their game and not and it's too expensive so i would bundle a product on top of Lightwire if i was to go into market again which might not happen for three years and eight months. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> very specific. Um, I think for me, there's really two plays. There's the Cordia play. Let's um, let's offset, as you said, um, reducing margin in the, the 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 transit, you know, the carrier level stuff, and and your your, um, your traditional WANs uh, by adding that MSP layer uh, to to what what they do. Or there's the um, become a channel um, supplier of choice to the channel. Uh, by ensuring that you're always complementing, not competing, right? And and that will mean that you're limited in what you can sell. Margins are only going one way, but hopefully you can get the scale um, and that you can, you know, provide sort of an evolving set of non-competing value adds that that offset that as you grow. Um, but that's that's really the two plays, I think, at this point in the telco market. And so which one are you pursuing? Um, have the you, second, all, absolutely you, the second. You've been yeah. channel focus. Okay, cool. And yeah. hence why you'll be at IT Nation to go and see all the MSPs? Absolutely. That's it. Okay, yeah. Cool. yeah, that's the play. 
Look, let's uh, let's finish off with one last question for you, which is uh, Zen contract. Where is it heading? Uh, give me a three-year forecast. That seems like a reasonable time frame. Sure. So we're fast approaching 100 uh, MSPs actively using it. There's another 100 that are on there trialing the system at the moment. Um, we're, we're, we're pretty much rounding out version 1.0. It's, I mean, it's version 3 because it's been around for a while, but but the actual modules that we have are 1.0. The things that we're going to be running out next will be Zen Policy, which will allow the MSPs to manage all of their clients' policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've then got Zen Vendor, which is uh, managing all your vendor contracts, which is a bit of a pain in the bum. You know, I've got a contract with Fortinet and Microsoft, and I need to know when it starts and ends and what the current prices I'm paying per unit and you know when do I need to start negotiating it and things because just the same as with your renewals for your client contracts, you know, trying to negotiate those things after the fact always puts you in the backseat. You, you just don't, yep. you're not on the front foot with it. Uh, we've got my, uh, we've got some strategy based um, modules that will be coming out as well, but we're just looking at making sure we get real traction with the core of what we are providing and that is managing client contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, the secondary will allow us to get a sell through and allow the MSPs to actually make money, monetize the platform, which would be charging a small fee for money, you know, monetize or managing all of the clients' uh, policies. And then eventually, uh, once they're really au okay with the software and see the benefits of it, then there's a, a channel program where they can actually go and put it into their clients as well uh, and go halves on the margin. So <clears throat> and get a lot of consulting work out of it. Eventually, the MSPs are going to have to evolve. You know, the uh, you're getting more into advancing your clients' businesses through technology as opposed to actually just supplying support services. Because mm-hmm. the theory is that the devices and the software should get easier to support, whether that's true or not in two, three, year, four years' time. You know, I just don't know yet. I can't predict that. Um, but evolving your service offering to allow for some business advancement you know, through contract management or through... Uh, you know, maybe software development or whatever it is, augmenting your current MSP, I think, is paramount to making sure that you're still relevant in three or four years. Yeah, absolutely. That Because, yeah, and, and even the vendors may choose to start supporting uh, end users directly, right? But it's about still enabling the end users to to understand what what services, what what software stack is going to enable them to achieve their their strategic goals and outcomes and, and only, you know, actually consulting with the client and having a, a really you know, detailed strategic conversation is going to help you understand what route they should go down. Yeah, 100%. I don't think that the MSP industry is in jeopardy at whatsoever. Like if anything, it's going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, but our breadth of the services being offered may need to widen out. Uh, and, and that's yeah. all I'm saying is that Zen Contract can be one of those. Um, but yeah, I mean, the next two, three, four years, we're, we're striving to get to uh, a thousand MSPs that we can help get compliant with all their contracts. If we do that, then we uh, we fulfil all of our business goals and our passion and drive to actually help the industry. It's been pretty good to us, uh, the one that we've been in. So we want to use this as a vehicle to give back a bit and uh, and you know have a lot of fun along the way. Nice. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Let's check in again in a year or so and see exactly how that journey is going. And more shorter term, I will see you in uh, late August, early September. After I would have just got back, literally like two days before that, from three weeks in Europe, so I should be in uh, well rested and ready, uh, ready, ready for a bit of work slash just, uh, uh, socials. Thanks very much for the chat, and I've enjoyed it. Uh, and um, well, yeah, look forward to catching up in a year. Sounds good, mate. Cheers.